Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. This is episode number 115. I'm Sarah Wendell with Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Kate Noble, also known as Kate Rorick. I did an interview with her last summer, which you may remember, in which we talked a little bit about her television show that she's writing for, The Librarians, which is a reboot of a series of movies that starred Noah Wiley. Now, you may be thinking, why are you talking about a TV show? I mean, that's kind of annoying. And if you are allegedly outside the U.S., and I say allegedly because apparently people think that there are countries outside the United States, that there are countries other than the U.S. and the world, which is just completely hilariously wrong. We all know that. But hypothetically, you would be thinking, I don't get TV shows when they're new. This is not applicable to me. Not true. This show is going to premiere internationally on the same day, December 7th or the 8th. This show is going to be on, very likely, on a universal network channel near you, wherever you are, even if you're allegedly outside the U.S., which I think is pretty freaking cool. So we talk about the show, talk about the episodes she wrote, and how success is judged when the way that we watch TV constantly changes. I also talk about listener mail, which involves novellas and podcast recommendations. Anything that we talk about during the podcast will be in the podcast entry, which will be on the site when this episode goes live. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and where you can buy it. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Holiday on Ice, an original holiday novella in the play-by-play series from New York Times best-selling author J.C. Burton. You can download it on November 18th. And now, on with the podcast interview with Kate Noble, or Kate Rorick, or both, because they're the same person. So convenient. I love when that happens. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about The Librarians is not only because it's really friggin' cool and I saw a preview for it and was like about to shimmy off my couch, but Carrie, who writes for me, sent me an article from Variety about the fact that the show is going to be premiered within 24 hours all around the world. Mm -hmm. So like people in different countries, allegedly, I am told there are countries other than us. It's it, I've, I've been to a couple there you know, Canada. Yeah, but. I mean, apparently they set up large sets and masquerade as other countries just to trick us. But apparently, maybe, possibly, there are other countries aside from the United States. And they all get this show within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. That doesn't usually happen. No, it doesn't usually happen. But I, I think that um, this show, uh, the, the, this kind of show, it's heavily serialized. So there's so much, um, there's, there's so much story that happens within each particular episode that... And the way that we communicate now um, is that you know, I've got Twitter from England, and I have to block them when Doctor Who comes on the air. Or because Downton I, Abbey. Or Downton Abbey, because I don't want to be spoiled. Yep. Um, so I think that that's, that's a reaction to the globalization of the way we consume media so more than anything else. So that's actually really smart. Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah, like, whoa. Like, I, I feel like all of Tumblr is going to be like, this is amazing. <laughs> We can I all so. animate the gifs at the same time. I hope Tumblr freaks out. That would be awesome. But it's such like it's such a fun show. We had so much fun making it. Um, so I know some people are familiar with it and some are not. So if you could, is it possible, as deeply involved <laughs> as you are in the story, to explain what The Librarians is? All right. Well, there. I will tell you as much as I can, but there's... Um, like I said, it's a heavily serialized show, and I don't want to, like, spoil anything for anybody. So I'll, right, I'll try right. to do this without spoilers. Basically, there's... There are uh, librarians. There are librarians. Um, there, 
over uh, the course of the past decade, there's been a couple of movies about the librarian, who is Flynn Carson, played by the lovely and delectable Noah Wiley. Um, Flynn Carson? Flynn like Carson. The, that's like the greatest <laughs> romance hero name. That's like my top romance hero name of the day. If, if he was to be a romance hero, he'd be a beta. He would absolutely oh, yeah. be a beta. He's I'm very... so on board. Let's watch. Let's go. <laughs> Um, but he's, uh, he's the librarian and he, um, of the Metropolitan Library that has a secret collection of all the world's historical objects and mysterious and mystical objects uh, and mythical objects. Um, like you're going to find the Holy Grail in there. You're going to find the Fountain of Youth in there. You're going to find, I think you can probably find a pirate ship like the Jolly Roger in there, if I recall correctly. Cool. And he's always worked alone. He's always had a guardian, you know, somebody to uh, shoot the gun, essentially, so he doesn't get killed. Um, and, but he's always worked alone. But stuff happens. Convenient, stuff since it's a television show with episodes. Yes, uh, that makes it so that he finds it necessary to assemble a team of librarians. And while Flynn Carson is a bit of a polymath, he knows lots about lots of stuff. Uh, our team of librarians know um, are, are very uh, specific. They're a team of experts. Like uh, we've got an art historian and we've got a, um, a, a mathematical genius and then synesthete. I can't say, I can't pronounce word. Synesthete? The one where you yeah. can like, where numbers have a color and, and things yeah, like that? exactly. And these are all played by people no one has ever heard of. Uh, well, no, uh, Rebecca Romaine you've heard of. And Bob Newhart. <laughs> And, well, in Bob Newhart, yes. And Jane and, Curtin and John Larroquette. And John we've never heard of any of those people. And Noah Wiley is like a complete no one that anyone, no one has ever seen. No, and, and Christian Kane, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, nobody's ever heard of him either. No, <laughs> no he's not, he's not a dreamboat or anything. No, he's not really, really handsome in person either. <laughs> <laughs> that must just suck for you. It was terrible. It was just. So how many episodes have you written? What was your role in the development of the new show? Well, um, in the show we have, it's, it's a 10-episode first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pilot, the, the, the season premiere, is actually the first two episodes. So um, what we did is that there's a, a writing staff, and we all got in a room together. There were four of us plus the uh, showrunner, so five people total. Uh, and we basically broke down what the show was going to be, what the characters were, the characters' relationships to each other, uh, and and what, like, in our wildest fantasies, what would our episodes be? And the great thing about this show is that it's, the way it's set up, you can, like, do a lot of different stuff in terms of, uh, of, of your wildest fantasy, of what you want to write for a television show. Like, we, we have some episodes that are very um, psychological horror. We have some episodes that are, are like, straight-up thriller. We've got some just absolutely ridiculous ones. Um, one of m- uh, mine is the absolutely ridiculous, I think. I, I claim the ridiculousness of that particular episode. <laughs> <laughs> is, so is each episode they have to add to the collection or they have to figure out something's going on with one of the artifacts? It all ties into the artifact area in which they work. Yeah, there are uh, artifacts out there in the world that they have to go collect. There are artifacts out there that have you know gone astray. Yeah, there are just random things that are happening um, that they are getting clues about that they should probably go investigate because they are outside the realm of the normal. Ah, good thing they're librarians. Yeah, well, you know, they've got, a, they've got research underneath their fingernails. They, right. they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a romantic element to the show? Oh, yeah. 
there's um all the tingles tingling <laughs> okay i gotta go set my dvr again what can i say without giving stuff away all you um, have to do is say yes if you don't want to say anything more than that that's totally fine yes there's when you have handsome men such as noah wiley and christian kane and you have beautiful women and such as rebecca romaine and uh lindy booth and whatnot on the show there is going to be some sort of romantic you know, moving pieces around. Darn, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> what a terrible, terrible thing. The, the the Variety article is really, really, really scant. It's basically, uh, here's what's happening. Two important people say we are pleased or thrilled. It's like the PR spin. Someone has to say they're thrilled or pleased or very pleased. It's like the law. And then they Charmed have, and enchanted. Yes, exactly. They have a very basic descri uh, description that the librarian centers on an ancient organization hidden beneath the Metropolitan Public Library and mm -hmm. they're supposed to preserve magic and keep it hidden and also look really good doing it. Yes. That's, that, yeah, that's it. They did a much better job summing up the show than I did. <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of the things that, if you can explain, about mm -hmm. your work with the librarians that you really enjoyed in terms of writing for it and, and then creating the show? Um, I One of the things that I really enjoyed, I think, was what I was saying about it. We in our wildest fantasies, what kind of show would you write? And this show allowed each of us to write our, essentially our wildest fantasy, and they're all very different. The fact of the matter is that we can have very, very different kinds of episodes, but it's all the same show. Yes. Um, so I, I enjoy that. I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who, and it's got, a little, it's got a little touch of the Doctor Who on it, where, you know, like, you can be on a planet, or you can be in history, or you can be um, all that other stuff. But it's a... Uh, it's it, it's that it's the fun episodes of the X Files. You get to you get to play in a world with magic and yep. craziness and travel it's, and magic. It's that's that's the most fun part about it to me. <laughs> My favorite episodes of the X Files were always the ones where they had to go somewhere. Well, like, yeah, I, yeah. I could not have cared less about Mulder's house and then putting <laughs> tape on the window and his office is dusty. Like when they actually had to go travel somewhere, and I was like, this is awesome. So you've basically blended magic the unknown travel and hot librarians. Yes. How is this not going to do well? Like, I don't see how <laughs> this happens in this universe. And you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I don't, I'm actually, I feel really bad saying this to a TV writer, but I'm actually really bad at watching TV. That's okay. <laughs> because I don't always trust TV writers to have an end in mind. And because I'm a romance reader and because I read so much in the novel structure mm -hmm. and because I read the romance novel genre, I particularly like the ending. I like knowing it's there. And so I feel with a lot of shows that I get started with that ultimately there comes a point where the ending could have been here, but then there was renewal. So they come to another ending and then maybe there was syndication. So there's another ending, but it's not really an ending. And then you get to a point where there was no ending except might have happened. And I and it just I, I just get so frustrated because I feel like there are so many shows where I have started where the ending was some nebulous possibility that never happened. And then it got canceled because there was no ending. That's fair. I wish it was. <laughs> Not to totally talk shit to your face about your actual industry, but that's this is why I struggle with television. So I am so excited about this show, in part because it, it, there's there's all of the larger elements, but the the story it doesn't have to have an ending. Like there has to be a set of things that are going to happen in each episode to bring that story closure. But there's still more stuff that can happen. Yeah, what you've described is procedural television, and it's why Law and Order is still on the air after 25 years. Yes, thank you. I didn't know there was a word for that. Holy shit, there's a word for that? 
Yeah. Well, there's, there, we have words. We're writers. <gasps> oh my God. It's like magic. <laughs> no, you just but, do things with the alphabet. So that's called procedural where there's a procedural, world. Well, where you essentially where there is, um, the story of the episode is, if you look at it like Law and Order, the story of Law and Order is one episode, one crime. You are done in an hour. Yes. Essentially. Um, you have a similar character. You have characters that carry through. They might have a very small storyline, but it's not overwhelming. The story of the show is the procedural. It's the Correct. CSI. It's the you're going to solve a crime in an hour. It's the, um, it's the medical mystery. It's house, whatnot. Got it. Um, Which is why there's so many uh, cops and medical shows. Yeah, cop, doctor, lawyers, and cops. Although the lawyers now, the lawyer shows tend to have much larger storylines for the characters. Like you can't drop in in the middle of the Good Wife and be like, "What? What's going on?" Because you're not going to know. Good Wife, the Good Wife is a is a crazy hybrid, and it works for that show. It, it works, works super well for that show. Yeah, but it doesn't. It's not going to work for Law and Order. Essentially, no, not at all. Although I would have been okay if Jerry Orbach had a very long romantic thread through that story before he died, because I liked him the best. But anyway. I think everybody liked him the best. I definitely like him the best. I, it, the show's not the same without him. Yeah, well, that first, to be technical, that show's no longer on the air. Um, it's but, on right now. What are you talking about? It's on like five channels on my television. I could find five different episodes right this second. It's and happened. therefore, Jerry Orbach lives forever. That's right. It's immortality. Mm-hmm. Is there immortality in the librarians? They're not immortal, right? I, I can't say anything. You can't say? Oh, crap. Something's going to happen. <laughs> Just like us. I'm like a, I'm like a spoiler dog. I, I smell the spoilers. I'm going to. Well, the problem with the librarians is that everything's a spoiler at this point. Because <laughs> there's so many things that happen. Yeah. It's all stuff that's going to happen. Exactly. I can't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yay. So I was kind of confused when you wanted an interview because I was like, I can't say anything, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a show with people on it. They're good and there's books. Yes. Although, I mean, we've already talked about X-Files, Doctor Who, Travel Librarians, Noah Wiley, and other hot people. I'm imagining people are, like, now pulling over to write down the date and time. <laughs> and one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I think it's so cool that the show is going to go premiere for the whole world at the same time. That mm-hmm. I hope that becomes the standard. Well, it, I, I think it would be great if it was. It's just a matter of... Um, International it, distribution. International distribution. There's there's still a lot of a lot of country lines being drawn, and uh, it's think think about it with uh, books. You sell your foreign rights essentially exactly in books, and they come out two years after the first book came out. But you could have gotten that first book if you really really tried um, to in, in Indonesia when it was first released. Right. And if you're selling the print rights <laughs> for an international book, that could take two years. But five minutes on Google will find that person the digital version somewhere. Exactly. Most likely in a format that they can access. Mm-hmm. If they're, you know, open to piracy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here's a question that we were talking about, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it. We were talking about rating systems mm-hmm. and how you know a show is a success, because I didn't realize this, but there are actually systems that track not only the people who watch a show live, but the people who DVR it and watch it later or stream it on Hulu. Like, there are actually ways to track who's doing what with a show to measure its success? Well, there are, but they're not. It's, it's, everything's changing because every, the way that we watch television is changing. For the last 40, 50 years, the standard of rating systems has been the Nielsen's rating system. Right. And that is, um, there are something like 
25,000 Nielsen households in the country, and they are statistical representations of the rest of us. In, in being statistical representations, what they watch is they, what they think the rest of us are watching. Right. So it's like a cross section of TV viewers. Yeah. And then it's, it's the a Nelson's, poll, essentially, it's, it's, it's a, like a sample. It's, it's a sample. Um, this is why there's so much law and order because there's like five Nielsen families who are like complete law and order junkies. And that's why, right? <laughs> well, that and they do really well on reruns. Yes, they, um, they do. But it's also that <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's problematic because the way that we watch television is changing and has been changing. And with the advent of cable, you would think that people could actually like tell what you're watching on cable. If they could record it actually individually, you wouldn't need this Nielsen box. Um, uh, and especially with the advent of internet watching, watching on your iPad, on streaming services, Hulu and Netflix and whatnot, um, it changes uh, how the fact that we are changing how we are watching television is changing how we um, determine what's determine what's a success. Well, I mean, in publishing, we don't even have an accurate gauge of how many books are sold across all formats. Like it, it can be very difficult to figure that out. So I'm not surprised yeah. that television and, and television has a similar problem. I, I do believe that there is best faith efforts on the parts of the publishers and on the parts of the totally. television executives. It's just a matter of like, there are so many people and there are so many units and yeah. how do you track of everything? Especially with books where each different edition might have a different ISBN number and how do you catalog that? Plus, how do you track all of the sales? And even our measures of success in publishing aren't much like the Nielsen's. They're not exactly the most accurate sample. Like the New York Times book review is a sample of a certain number of bookstores, but it doesn't always accurately represent what sells in other areas, what sells in a completely like local area, what sells nationally. That that's not an entirely accurate sample any more than the Nielsen's are. Yeah. So what yeah. is what is same day plus three or plus seven? Well, what it is is that you've got your live ratings. You've got the people that you know tune in at eight, eight, eight p.m. to watch the episode of The Big Bang Theory, which I don't know if it's actually on at eight p.m. because I don't watch that show live. Um, I don't know that many. <laughs> I mean, what do we watch live? Sporting events? The Olympics? Sporting events. Well, we no, don't even watch just, the Olympics live because that's time delayed. If you look at the Nielsen ratings, um, like for the past, I, I looked it up last night because we were talking about it. Um, football is the first two on uh, the Nielsen ratings. And then it's like NCIS, NCIS, New Orleans, uh, the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> <laughs> and then more football. So uh, those, those are the things that, are, that garner um, live ratings, essentially. But there's also, uh, a couple of years ago, they started to take into account people that record on their DPR. So live plus same day is one rating and then there's live plus three which is plus three days and live plus seven so those ratings make a very um they, they can make a very different uh paint a different picture right because uh you may not watch a television show the minute it airs nope. you may watch it the next morning while you're making breakfast you may watch it you know two days later when you actually have time to sit down and watch television or now with 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 uh shows like the ones on netflix that are that are produced and all of the episodes are released at once. You may sit down and watch a whole season at the same time. Yeah, well, the Netflix has a very different model of how they do business. Yep, yep. Um, and they can, um, they can offer um, all of their episodes, all of their seasons at once. They can do a binge-watching model because, A, they've discovered that people binge-watch. Netflix has probably all of the data that we want. They're just not releasing it. Oh, I know. Um, They're like Amazon and TV Land. 
I yes. know this about them. Like TV people are so frustrated because Netflix won't give them any data. And I'm like, oh my God, they're like Amazon. They must date. I bet they date. I bet Netflix and Amazon <laughs> go out on really hot. Like there needs to be, I bet there's, I would bet you there is Netflix, Amazon fan fiction. I don't want to look that up. <laughs> I'm telling you, there is some slash Amazon Netflix. Netflix and Amazon Netflix. I'm going to start writing it now and then watch. I'll be a zillionaire because somebody will totally buy it. But anyway, Netflix has a totally different model. Yes, and they dump all at once because they know people binge. They know people binge, but they also can dump all at once because they're not, their money does not come from advertising. Their money comes from subscription fees. Right. So they don't worry necessarily about ratings over time because those minor adjustments determine how much people pay to uh, have their 30-second advertisement within your episode of The Big Bang Theory. Um, What they're determining is how many people sign up for their service and retain their service based on these shows being available. Right. So that's, that's what matters to them. Right. Whereas with a network show or even a show on cable... You want to maintain viewership across the show because that's when your advertiser spots are. But -hmm. if they're recording it, you also want them to see those. You you also want to see the numbers of people who are recording it and watching it later because Because that's still valuable information. That still determines the uh, popularity of a show. And it's... The DVRs are tricky because people fast forward through commercials. I watch most stuff on like Hulu or um, like streaming services like that, and you mm-hmm. sort of have to sit through the commercials. But since so many, since uh, streaming viewing is such a small percentage, mm-hmm. they don't make a lot of money off of my viewership. They would make more money off of my viewership if I was watching it live. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yet we, we, one of the things that I think is fascinating about how we, how the way we consume entertainment generally has changed Mm -hmm. is that we want to tailor everything to our expectations and our needs. So I may not want to watch TV on my actual television. I may want to watch it on a small screen close to my face where I can wear headphones and it's my private thing. I may want to watch it on the train where I don't have internet. Everyone wants to tailor their television watching to their own experience. Well, the people are fitting in their entertainment around their lives, essentially, yes. which is, as a consumer, is actually much better and allows me to consume more, Yep. quite honestly, because at 8 o'clock at night, I'm putting my kid down. I'm not able to watch television. Nope. 10 o'clock at night, I'm more likely to be able to do so. Whereas my, the older that I get now that I'm all, all old and stuff, I don't actually, I go to bed at 10. I have, I have actually have a reminder on my clock because I never know what time it is. I actually have a reminder on my phone that says, go to bed, damn it, at 9.50 p.m. Because otherwise I'll sit there and be like, holy crap, it's 12, I'm going to be a basket case. And I don't do well on no sleep. So I don't watch anything at 10. Like people are in the morning on Twitter, oh, and Conan and Craig and things online. I'm like, yeah, I, late night shows, I watch those at like 7 in the morning. <laughs> I'm not awake <laughs> at that point of my life. No, I, I watch the bed. Daily Show while I watch breakfast, while I eat breakfast. Totally, and you're yeah. you you have it even worse because if you're on the West Coast, like live events on the East Coast are on at like four o'clock in the afternoon for you. No, well, I mean, the, the only time I watch anything live, like we have to break out the bunny ears, and I live on the side of a of a mountain, mm-hmm. so we have to um like it. It, the bunny ears do not work. They it, they work in a very specific pattern, like out on the balcony, like and they can hold for an hour or two. Um, so I only watch stuff live if it's like the Oscars or the yep. Golden Globes, and that's that's my catnip. And I'll drink a lot of wine and enjoy the hell out of myself. Um, but so for me, like those events, those are very very rare. Yeah, 
And I and, and if you're not watching it live, a show like that, there's not a lot of point in watching the whole thing later. You're just going to watch someone's no. highlight reel. But that's on at 5 p.m. over here. Yeah, that's just... I've, I've, I've always been, I remember as a little kid being so confused by the fact that if I was allowed to stay up and watch the Oscars, it was like eight or nine o'clock and I grew up in Pittsburgh. So it was dark. So I was on the East coast or on the Eastern time zone. And it was like in the middle of the day where everyone was like, Oh, I just finished lunch and then I had a nap and now I'm here at the Oscars. And I'm like, the sun's out. Where are you people? Like I had no idea how large the difference was. So with the with with the show that you work on and the mm-hmm. shows that you've worked on with YouTube and online shows like the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, that's kind of an obvious a measure because the number of YouTube views is right there. Yeah, uh, that's followers and engagement. I mean, that's all stuff that you can quantify. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to go back to TV where it's a little bit less quantifiable? No, it's not hard. That's not really consideration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um. I, I don't really think about television or, or the writing that I do in that way. Um, I mean, I did the Lizzie Bennett Diaries because it was my chance to write Pride and Prejudice. Of course. And that was like, that was the draw for me. If, if it was on the internet, if it was, you know, it could have been a backyard stage play <laughs> at, um, at Summerstock and I still would have been like, sure, been, let's, let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> So the, the ratings for you as a writer are something that you know you are aware of and that you have to be aware of, but that's not what you're actually focusing on when you do your job. No. First of all, because you, you do your job much further in advance. Of course, especially uh, in television. It's in television, yeah. Um, it, but in book writing, too, you do, like, I'm, the book I'm writing right now is not going to come out for another year. So um, I, I have to, I, I can't think about it doing well. I just have to think about telling the story that I want to tell. Right. Is there a, a scene or a moment or a specific part of one of the episodes that you're really excited about seeing or that you're, you, it is your favorite? Like what, is there a scene or a moment that we should all watch for that you're really excited about? I co-wrote an episode uh, with another writer, Paul, who's awesome. And it takes place at a science fair. And I'll just say that. And I really, really enjoyed that episode. So, so. With the science fair, we should be paying attention because that should be fun. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Kate Noble or Kate Rorick, who are lucky for me the same person. But before we go, I do have some listener mail that I wanted to share with you because listener mail is awesome. This first email is from Elizabeth, who writes, Dear Sarah and Jane, I love the podcast. It brings joy to my life. My only disappointment is that it's only once a week, but yes, you have lives and stuff. It's amazing to me. I I have not only live, but also stuff. Like, it's kind of incredible. And the stuff always needs cleaning, which is really annoying. Anyway, I have a question I've been pondering, and I'm still not sure how to frame it. I've read a number of novellas that are half books in a longer series. In other words, they are book number 0.5 before book one. I'm assuming authors issue these to try and tease the series they're promoting, but does this work for most people? And I am guessing at the correct reason they do this. I think the novella format is hard for many romance authors to pull off, so my reaction to many of them is, meh, fine, but I'm not really inspired to read more unless I've already bought them on sale, to which Elizabeth says, curse you, SBTB, DA sales. Sometimes, however, they've almost put me off the entire series. For example, This Wicked Gift by Courtney Milan. I picked it up when you mentioned a slew of Milan books on sale this summer. Milan's a go-to author of mine. 
I usually super duper like, love, or really love her books, but I couldn't stand this novella. I would not have read another Milan book if she hadn't already hooked me with other books, and I'd purchased the next two in the Carhartt series, which I ended up loving and super liking. I posted my review on Goodreads and saw another reviewer who had a similar negative reaction to Gift, but she wasn't a Milan fan already and wasn't about to try more. I told her she should, because doesn't everyone listen to random strangers on Goodreads? And she's going to give it a try. But back to my question. What gives with this preponderance of introductory novellas, and are people actually getting hooked on series because of them? Again, thank you so much for the podcast. I've been gardening all summer, and this has been my companion, and now that we've entered the polar vortex, yay Minnesota, it's my housework distraction enjoyment. So thank you, thank you. You are very welcome. Now that we all have lives and stuff and the stuff needs cleaning, I'm happy to distract you. But as for your question... I have absolutely no idea the motivations of an author writing anything. Like, I know diddly poodle about it. However, I have theories. I think that sometimes readers do get hooked on a series from the introductory novella. This Wicked Gift didn't work for you, but I do know that Unlocked, which was the prequel novella, I believe, to the Turner series, that hooked the hell out of me. I love that novella. When a writer is very skilled with the shorter format, the novella can be a really great interstitial opportunity to revisit an established world, particularly a world that has already been built, sort of in the urban fantasy sense, like Nalini Singh's Sai Changeling series or her Guild Hunter series. Or a novella could be an opportunity to visit a world that's familiar to many readers, such as the Regency historical world. If you can enter and have a short visit and get the full story in a shortened amount of time. Many readers, myself included, like that. They don't always work as a hook for me. I don't think that there has been a time, and I'm thinking really hard right now, I'm sure you can hear the gears turning. I don't don't think that there's been a time where I've read novella and been like, get out of my way, I need everything else in the series right now. But if I had the novella and the rest of the series, I'm very happy, much like you. I did, however, this week read the introductory novella to Cresley Cole's uh, Immortals After Dark series, which was part of an anthology called Playing Easy to Get. And And the novella was called The Warlord Wants Forever. I had never read it because I didn't want to buy the anthology and I had never seen it published uh, on its own. But when I was doing a trial of Scribd, it was in there, so I grabbed it and I read it. I don't know if that one would have hooked me on the entire universe of that series because there were a lot of things where I was like, world building, paragraphs, description, no dialogue, lots of descriptions, skip, skip, skip. Oh, more people talking. But having been made very familiar with the world and having read a lot of the Immortals After Dark series, I was really happy to read that particular novella because it got me a, you know, got me a visit with the world that I hadn't read in a while. I do know, though, that self-publishing has made it easy to write and publish a novella, so authors who may want to fill in the gap between two books may deploy the novella for that purpose. But I'm curious about your thoughts on novellas. Has a novella hooked you on a series? Does it work for you as a reader? Do you grab the novella first, or do you read it later? Do you read the first book and go back to read the introductory novella at some later time? What are your ideas on novellas? What do you think of them? You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, because I'm actually very curious about your opinion. This next email is from Amy. And Amy writes... 
Dear Sarah and Jane, I am a huge fan of Smart Bitches Trashy Books and Dear Author. I visit them both on a daily basis. Jane and I say thank you. It's become my routine to listen to your podcast every Sunday while I am cleaning. Everyone's cleaning. You're either on the treadmill or you're cleaning. I love this. Can you clean on the treadmill? Maybe my treadmill needs cleaning. Hmm. Anyway, I am always excited when I miss a Sunday and have two to listen to instead of one. Unfortunately, I have to clean more than once a week, so I was wondering if you could recommend any other fun podcasts. Thank you for being so awesome and for all of the great recommendations you have provided over the years. Ha ha! Funny you should ask, Amy. Recently, uh, my husband gave up watching football. He gave up on the NFL altogether, something I'd done a couple of years ago. And because he listened to sports radio to and from work, he started listening to podcasts instead. So we have had, he and I, several conversations about the podcasts that we like and why. And I have recently subscribed to a whole bunch of new ones that I've been enjoying. And so I will share them with you now. First, my number one go-to hot damn, there's a new episode, this is going to be awesome podcast, is Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Linda Holmes, who is the editor of the pop culture blog at NPR that's called Monkey See, runs a sort of roundtable discussion with a number of people who are all very smart and in, have a distinct perspective on whatever it is that they're discussing. And it's never just, here is a thing we're going to talk about. There's a reason behind why they're talking about it and an angle that they take that makes for an interesting discussion. Plus, the podcasts are 45 to uh, 45 mittens. To, uh, 45 mittens. Did I just say 45 mittens? Wow, I'm leaving that in. I hope you enjoyed that. I've had a day where my brain and my mouth are not really working well together, but that was just so great. We are now measuring time in winter weather hand coverings. So 45 mittens to an hour is pop culture discussion, and I'm totally down with that. The episodes that I really, really like lately are those that have Gene Demby and Kat Chow from the NPR blog Code Switch, which is all about race in America. Between Gene Denby and Kat Chow and Glenn Weldon and Stephen Thompson and Linda, Linda Holmes, I could pretty much just listen to them talk for like hours and hours and hours. And I know I'm not alone because every time they do a live show, it sells out in some ridiculous amount of time, like less than a second. So the number one recommendation I have is Pop Culture Happy Hour. The other podcasts that I really like are Travel with Rick Steves. Now, the trick is with Rick Steves, I usually download the ones that are places where I've either been, am curious about, or desperately want to go. And I really like the ones where he interviews people who are writing cookbooks or have written cookbooks or have anything to say about food or who are tour guides in the towns or cities or countries in which they talk about, because then you're going to hear from someone who is showing you where they live and why they love it. And I really like that part. Another podcast that my husband and I both really enjoy is America's Test Kitchen. Now, we watch America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country on television, and the host, Chris Kimball, can come across on television as a little condescending, a little rigid, although there are moments where he dresses up in a costume and it's just incredible. There was one where he dressed up as a shrimp, and I, I think it traumatized some level of my optic nerve because my vision hasn't been the same since. The podcast, however, is really warm and friendly and entertaining because they take calls from people who have cooking questions. They interview people and they talk about not only recipes, but also kitchen gadgets and food stories, like stories about food. There was an October 24th episode about a story from the uh, 1940s or 1950s about a day where meat fell from the sky and how this could have happened. The one episode that I really, really enjoyed was from this past week, November 7th, 
It's episode number 332, where Chris Kimball interviews New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells. Pete Wells is the guy who wrote the review of Guy Fieri's Times Square restaurant. Easily the most scathing negative review I have ever seen and could never even hope to achieve that level of hilarity. Because they're talking about reviews and what it means to give a positive review and a negative review of a restaurant, you can imagine that this was somewhat relevant to my interests. But the discussion that they had about what you're doing when you write about a thing that other people consume, whether it's food or entertainment or the experience of dining, was also very interesting. Another podcast that I recommend very highly is called Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is a podcast that's based on trivia, but it's for people who ask one another different trivia questions, and they have a recurring theme for each episode so that everyone devises a set of questions for the others, but all of those questions relate to the theme. And they're also very funny. They have great chemistry, and the trivia questions are both out landishly weird and also very familiar. And there's something very addictive to listening to people answer trivia and being like, I know that one. This is something that we like to listen to together, my husband and I, particularly when we're in the car. But the one that I am the most addicted to right now to the point where I listen to it while I'm cooking and my kids come in the kitchen and are like, where is that voice coming from? Is This American Life. I started listening because in a recent pop culture happy hour podcast, Linda Holmes was talking about how the podcast that everyone is completely bonkers over right now, Serial, is effectively a long individual episode version of a story on This American Life. As, as she put it, look, Serial is like This American Life. If you like that, you like this. And I have not listened to Serial, but This American Life is all of my catnip. It is stories about individual people who you might never, um, never otherwise hear about. The themes of each episode is they're really clever. The ones that I really liked recently were my pen pal, which included a story about a young girl who started a pen pal correspondence with Manuel Noriega that went on for a couple of years until he invited her and her mother down to meet him and to meet the people of Panama. And it was obviously quite a political stunt on his part, but the, to hear her and her mother talk about it is really fascinating. The other podcast that I recently listened to from This American Life is episode number 509, it says so right here, which took a look at how an individual person's life can be changed by what is or isn't on a document, whether it's a birth certificate or a medical result. That one was really compelling listening, but the production of the stories and the way in which they find these stories is really interesting. So that's a podcast that I have been listening to almost regularly. I have tried a couple others and I haven't grabbed onto them you know, with a full subscription and I listen every day. But I also know that if you are listening to this podcast, that you probably have others to recommend. So if you have podcast recommendations that you would like to share, I would love to hear them and I'm sure Amy would too. You can email us. Do you know the email address? I bet you do. It is sbjpodcast at gmail.com. That's S for Sarah, B for bitches, J for Jane podcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you about novellas or your ideas about podcasts that you think we would like. Or if you have an idea for an interview or something we should feature or something we should talk about, we want to hear that too. And that is all for this week's episode. The music that you are listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is Sonata for Piano, Opus 26, 
composed by Samuel Barber and performed by Jade Simmons. It's from her album Revolutionary Rhythm, which you can find as a CD or as an MP3 at Amazon and other places where music is sold. And I will link to both Amazon and iTunes and anywhere else when the podcast entry goes up. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Holiday on Ice, an original holiday novella in the play-by-play series from New York Times bestselling author J.C. Burton. You can download it on November 18th, which conveniently is on Tuesday. And hey, it's a novella in a series, an established ongoing series. Clearly, this is a thing that works. And also, if you haven't read or seen the play-by-play series, you should look at them because that's pretty much the pinnacle of hot cover art, and I'm not sure anyone could possibly do better. And the series is pretty smoking hot, too. If you like hot contemporary with sports themes, you probably like that series. I think all of the issues with the podcast feed on iTunes have been worked out, but if you're still having trouble, please email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can email me at sarah at smartbitches.com. I check both addresses. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher Radio. We're on Podcast Pickle with all of the finest pickle-themed podcasts. We should totally do an episode on pickles now that I'm thinking about it. Hmm. And that's not just a euphemism. Either way, wherever you are listening to podcasts, we are probably there. And if you're having trouble finding us, I would be happy to help you find us more. Because the more places we are, the more places we can talk about romance novels with people. I also like knowing that whether you're cleaning or you're on the treadmill that you try to talk back to us. That's awesome. If you do want to talk back to us, email us or call our Google Voice number, which is 1-201-371-DBSA. We would absolutely, I swear I am not even kidding, love to hear from you. But in the meantime, on behalf of Jane and Kate Noble and myself, we wish you the very best of reading. Thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend.